One Week Season. OWS fam, welcome to the week four edition of the OWS Angles podcast. I am your host. I am your guest. I am JM to win. As always, throw this baby on 1.5x speed or 2x speed and let's get started. It is a rainy overcast day in Oregon which is pretty normal for this time of year but we haven't had this the last few weeks. So Giving that intro while looking out of the window at uh, some evergreens and overcast day in Oregon, very nostalgic, very much football season, very much OWS season. This is what we've been doing for years. This is what we will continue doing for years. So excited to be here with you today on a slate that is really, really unique. And... I guess let's start here. If you're new here, which it's early enough in the season, that could still be uh, a decent number of you. If you're new here, zooming out what DFS is about. DFS is not about who the best plays on the slate are. We have to know who the best plays on the slate are in order to do well in DFS. But that is just step one out of many steps toward achieving consistent DFS profit. More important is understanding what first place rosters look like and what it looks like to play for first place. Again, we have the playing for first place course in the DFS education area of the site. Look at the courses tab at the top of the site. Uh, playing for first place zero to 100 is a free course. Very much encourage you to listen to that. We've had so many people in discord talking about how much that course has helped them posting screenshots of big wins that they've had early in the season and crediting that course for helping their mindset shift in a way that helped them build the roster that they built. Uh, then obviously there's a part two to the course that's available for free to all inner circle members. If you're an inner circle member, you heard me imploring you on the winner circle podcast this week to listen to that as well. Uh, if you're not an inner circle member, you can pick up that course for 39 bucks. But this idea of building rosters that have a clear shot at a fir first place finish or a portfolio of rosters that have a clear shot at a first place finish. Now, a lot goes into that. We won't talk about all of it today, but in the context of today's podcast, in the context of this podcast, the part of part of all of this is recognizing that every slate is totally different. And the way that we've described it in the past is every slate is a unique puzzle. And before you can put that puzzle together, ideally, you have the picture on the box that shows you what that puzzle is going to look like. So from that perspective, the goal of the Angles podcast is to Take what we did in the Angles email, which you either get in your inbox or you can find at the top of the scroll every week. Take what we did in the Angles email where we kind of take a numbers-driven look at what the slate provides and then go a step further to say, how does roster construction set up on this particular slate? What is the picture on the puzzle box for this particular slate in terms of what it gives us what makes it unique, and what are some of the clear paths to outmaneuvering the field on our way to first place finishes. So if you've been here since the start of the season, you've seen week in and week out how valuable this step in the process is and how closely the weekend has ended up playing out each of the first three weeks to what we've talked about in the Angles podcast and the approaches that we want to be taking in order to position ourselves for those first place finishes. So that's not to say that every single week you're going to hit on the right players, the right combinations of players, the right roster, exact roster setup that gets you to that first place finish. But it is to say that if you don't know what the picture on the box looks like, if you're flying blind, then you're going to have a lot of weeks where you're drawing dead. And if you instead have a clear sense week in and week out of what the slate provides you with and what you need to be thinking about on that particular week to target those first place finishes, then you're always going to be in position to build those types of rosters. And you're going to run into those weekends where everything lines up and you end up paying for two or three years worth of DFS play or multiplying your bankroll or jumping up 
up buy-in levels or however you want to handle those big weekends. And so that's what we're here to do is to position you for that. Zooming back in on this week. So uh, it is a unique week. We say that most weeks, most weeks do have some unique components. This is one, you know, last week we talked about it was a unique week and we were able to identify it as a week that for me didn't suit my strengths particularly well. And I went through all the reasons last week of why it didn't suit my strengths particularly well. And I told the story of on Thursday night, late Thursday night last week, how I'd kind of some things had clicked into place and it had been like, okay, now I see, I at least see what the picture on the box is. And that allowed me, I ended up finishing down a little bit of money last week. But if we ran out that slate a hundred times, I would estimate that I would have been profitable like a good 70% of weeks. Um, it was, I was an underdog to finish down money. I didn't finish down much money uh, and had a lot of the right pieces and it just didn't quite come together on the right rosters in the right places. Um, in fact, I had three main builds last week and uh, had you know 1800 on one main build and $800 or so on another main build and then like 350 on a third main build. It was that third main build that finished in the top four or 5% of single entry three max tournaments. And it was the other two that finished outside of the money and finished kind of right on that cut line where the bubble in the app was, was touching the payout area. And so uh, kind of that close to being, you know, up a couple thousand instead of down a couple thousand. And uh, so, yeah, it was one of those weeks for me where in terms of the way things lined up on my rosters, wasn't a profitable week, but in terms of did I get another win? Did I have another week that would have been profitable if we could have played out that slate over and over again? I did, right? And so that's what we're looking for is, you know, I'm two and one on the season in profitable weeks, but I'm three and oh in terms of putting myself in position to where if we could play out that slate a hundred times, I would be profitable over that sample size. So Ideally, we can position ourselves right here, right now to go 4-0 in that regard. Um, and if we're going, you know, like week three, I didn't have a big week, but we had, I think, like our largest number of screenshots in the Bink channel compared to weeks one and two, right? And so if we're constantly positioning ourselves as a collective OWS fam to know what the pic uh, picture on the box looks like and to build rosters that would give us profit over a larger sample size if we could play out that exact slate over and over again, then we're going to have a lot of OWS members who are hitting for really nice payouts, others who are finishing up a little bit of money uh, and kind of continuing to build toward though that, that profitable season. And actually in that regard, uh, let me take a little side trail here. And something that I did this year was I kind of mapped out. You know, I, I typically don't play week 18. I typically don't play Christmas week, depending on what day of the week that Christmas uh, slate falls on. And then I typically take one bye week per season. So I usually end up playing 15 slates on the season, uh, or at least on DraftKings, the DraftKings main slate. Sometimes I'll play you know, the bye week, I don't want to fly out of town and uh, to enter my DraftKings rosters, but I might play a little bit of FanDuel or a little bit of Yahoo. Uh, same thing with Christmas week. So if we just say DraftKings play, 15 weeks. And one of the things I mapped out at the start of the season this year was, really, I can have six weeks like I had in week three, where I finish down a little bit of money. I can have six weeks like I had in week one, where I finish up a little bit of money. And three weeks, like I had in week two, where I finish up a decent amount of money. I think I finished up 13 or 15 grand in week two. And if I go through the whole season and kind of go, you know, six, six weeks uh, in one area, six weeks in the other, and three weeks in the other, other area, I'm going to fin finish up a really nice chunk of profit on the year. So in other words, and this last week, you know, I put in 6K and I've returned about 4K. So that could almost fall into that middle category of, of like break-even-ish type weeks, right? To me, those break-even-ish weeks are where I finish up 5K to 8K or uh, finish with a 5K to 8K return on a 6K investment. Uh, the down weeks is where I finish with like a 1K to 3K return, or I guess 4K return, which was this last week on that 6K investment. And then the up weeks are when I'm finishing up, you know, 6K, 8K, 12K, 15K, whatever it might be. And then obviously there's always potential for it to be a 30K weekend or a 50K weekend or however those weeks shake out. But point being, that allows me to look at the season as instead of like, where am I at on profit right now? Instead, I'm looking at like, hey, I can sustain six weeks where I finish 
down a little bit of money as long as I'm going six, six, and three. And so right now I'm one, one, and one. So I'm ahead of pace on that, that third category where I need to have these weeks where I finish up like a chunk of money and I'm even pace or I guess slightly ahead of pace on the other two areas. And so having a mindset like that can also help however you want to break that down for yourself to recognize that what we're doing is we're building out a sample size throughout the season and the goal is to be up money at the end of the season. Also recognizing that NFL doesn't give us a massive sample size, especially if you're playing one roster per weekend or three or five rosters per weekend. And so sometimes it takes two, three years for that sample size to play out. But realistically, if you are an OWS member, and particularly if you are reading the scroll every week, if you are listening to the Winner Circle podcast and the Slate podcast every week, if you're consuming the content that not only helps you see who the best plays are in the slate, but also trains you in what a good DFS player looks like and what good DFS rosters look like. You should have a clear, clear expectation of profit across two, three NFL seasons. You should have a clear expectation of profit across that sample size. If you carry this this same type of thinking and these same elements into playing DFS in other sports, you should have a clear expectation of profit year in and year out. Said differently, you should be a profitable player. You are a profitable player if you are putting these things into action. So uh, again, recognizing that as well, that we look at this as a larger sample size. We also know that NFL doesn't give us a large sample, especially if you're not doing MME. And so, you know, maybe it takes two, three years for it to play out. But if you can kind of zoom out and have a create a perspective for yourself to where for me this last weekend, it was like, oh man, I played really well and everything could have lined up for a nice, like a a nice weekend instead of a down weekend. But also that's just like one check mark in this category. And I can sustain six of these. And honestly, obviously if I, if I have four bigger weekends to the three, then I can sustain additional weekends like last weekend. But uh, that kind of allows you to zoom out and see where you're at in the process. And uh, as long as you are playing well, as long as you are putting in a winning week each week, a week that would be profitable if you could play out that site over and over again, then you are going to be profitable over time in DFS. So with that, let's go ahead and take a look at this week's slate. So this is a week where I might not know what my I might not know who's going to be on my main builds until I select them at about 5 a.m. on the West Coast or 4 a.m. on the West Coast on Sunday morning. I might not know what my 8 to 10 to 12 single entry to 3 max rosters look like until Sunday morning when I select my rosters because this is a week where there isn't, there's obviously like, The plays that can make you money, the approaches that can make you money, and the approaches that can't, or the approaches that are certainly hindering your ability to make money. But there is also, to me, the way I'm seeing it, a clumped up nature to the slate. Now, to me, the way I'm seeing it, I think that's critical as well. Last week, I read that DM that uh, Jumper Who, Hunter Jumper, had sent me uh, talking about how valuable, in his mind, how valuable the scroll is because it has t- 10 different unique perspectives instead of a bunch of people parroting the same ideas and how valuable it is to pull in different perspectives and balance that with your own thoughts. And so, again, balance everything I'm saying with whatever other thoughts you've had throughout the week, whatever other podcasts you listen to or sites you read or content you read and then whatever else you're reading in the scroll or listening to from the other guys on OWS, right? Balance all of this. But the way I'm seeing it is that this is a very clumped up week. The way I'm seeing it is the example I've been using this week is Jalen Hurts and the uh, Dolphins-Bills game. And we'll take those piece by piece. So we'll take Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts is probably going to have a really good real-life game against the Washington defense. Last year, he threw for 340 yards and three touchdowns in one game against Washington. And in the other game, I think he had like 175 yards and one touchdown or two touchdowns. But that was the game where uh, the Eagles had the ball for only 19 minutes and 36 seconds. That was the game where Washington, where uh, Philadelphia took their first loss of the season. They were 8-0 and came out of that game against Washington with a loss. And Washington's whole goal in that game was we are going to run the ball. We're going to 
control the clock. We're going to not let the Eagles have the ball at all. Well, that's a little bit harder to do this year when Philadelphia ranks number one in run defense DVOA and has been completely shutting down the run so far. So this is not a difficult matchup for Jalen Hurts. The problem is it's a really difficult matchup for Sam Howell and the Washington offense on the other side of this game. So we are three for three so far on Philadelphia having a two-score lead at some point in the third quarter this season. Every game so far, Philadelphia has been two or more scores ahead in the third quarter, and it becomes this thing where it's like, okay, we're actually a more pass-leaning team than most people seem to realize, but we're, we're, we've got this big lead. It's deeper into the game. It's time to turn over to the run. It's time to protect Jalen Hurts. It's time to close out this game. And so Jalen Hurts, from a standpoint of the matchup and what he's able to do in the first half and maybe the first three quarters of this game, he probably gets one of these 23 to 25 to 26 to 28 to 30 point DraftKings games. But it's going to be a lot harder for him to have one of these 35 point games, one of these 38 point games, one of these games at his price tag that you're like, man, I really needed that game in order to win this week. Similarly, this Buffalo and Miami game. What are the chances of this game disappointing? Miami has scored 24 or more points in every game this year. Obviously, they scored 36 against the soft defense of the Chargers. They scored 70 against the Broncos team that uh, not only looked overmatched, but looked in the second half like, my God, can we just end this game and get out of here? Uh, And then they scored 24 against a really tough defense in the Patriots that knows them well. Well, the Bills fit that same category, right? And so one of the things that I've talked about this week is uh, there was a quote from Vance Joseph from his midweek press conference, Vance Joseph, defensive coordinator of the Broncos. And the reporters were asking him about that game against Miami. Um, uh, Coordinators tend to get like, the uh, media tends to get one opportunity each week to talk to coordinators. So, you know, in his mind, he's already turned the page this next week against Chicago, but the media members are wanting to find out, hey, like, what about this? game last week. And he said something that, you know, is obvious, but also to hear it from a a coordinator, hear him say this out loud and admit this was really interesting. And he he basically just said, you know, you, you practice for that speed, but you can't prepare for it. He said that you can't simulate that speed in practice. And then he said that speed was overwhelming. And then he went on to, you know, extend that statement and just kind of talk for another 10, 15 seconds about just how overwhelming that speed was when you saw it on the field. And what makes this Miami offense, people have started using the word revolutionary, like really smart people who know the NFL well have started using the word revolutionary. Well, I mean, it, it is the Kubiak offense that was you know, obviously expanded by Kyle Shanahan, who was able to continue Kubiak and, um, you know, was under Mike Shanahan all those years. And Kyle Shanahan has taken this offense and taken those core concepts of the outside zone run concepts and the layered passing routes. And really what you could almost look at the Shanahan offense as having no wide receivers. Every play is a run play in the Kyle Shanahan offense. It's just, is it a run play where you're handing the ball off behind the line of scrimmage? Or is it a run play where you are designing a way to get the ball to a pass catcher six yards downfield, eight yards downfield, 12 yards downfield, whatever it is, where the play is not only designed to get him the ball, but designed specifically thinking about how do we get yards after the catch? And then how do we draft and develop guys who can do exactly that? So Mike McDaniel has then taken that offense and added his own wrinkles to them with all of the speed that we have on this Miami team. And so not only do they have the speed, not only do they have the all of the Kyle Shanahan principles where they have the outside zone run, and Hilo talked about this this week in the NFL Edge, but they've added a lot of inside zone stuff that really throws off the defense on top of that. And then I talked about it last week. The Dolphins have all of this quick motion where not only is it motion, we know how valuable motion can be in terms of signaling to the quarterback what the defense is doing, but also throwing off communication on the defense. And basically every play from the Dolphins is going to have motion. But not only is it motion, but typically the motion is a sprint. These guys are not jogging in motion. It's typically they are running in motion. And then this is creating momentum when the ball is snapped. And then on top of all of that, the timing of the motion, a lot of it, the motion starts 
less than a half second before the ball is snapped. And so there's just so much that a defense is not used to seeing. And then on top of that, you add all of this speed that the Dolphins have. Uh, side note here, if you have not watched many or any Mike McDaniel press conferences, they're consistently hilarious. Uh, he's very dry humor and, and kind of has a lot of fun messing around with uh, media members. But uh, this last week, one media member asked him about the Dolphins having such a fast team and how the I believe it was the six fastest recorded times, like uh, miles per hour speeds that an NFL player has clocked this year on the field have all come from the Dolphins. And the reporter said, I mean, that that just seems unfair. And Mike McDaniel said, well, none of these guys are playing for us against their will. Uh, so unfair. I don't know. I thought that was hilarious. Anyhow, um, <laughs> so everything he's doing is so unique and so difficult to prepare for that if you've never seen it, it's really hard to be ready for it and take some time to adjust to it. But similar to the Patriots, the Bills have seen it and the Bills saw it three times last year. They, they faced Miami in the playoffs as well. Skylar Thompson was under center, but the concepts were still the same. And so you have a really good defense. They will be missing Jordan Poyer this week, which makes a difference on communication and, and skill on the back end, but a really good Bills defense that has seen this offense multiple times. Now you can't take away everything. There's there's very few coordinators who have the personnel and skill to do this, but we've talked over the years about teams that not only stretch the defense vertically, but also stretch the defense horizontally. So Kansas City is able to do that. Uh, San Francisco is able to do that. Miami is able to do that. Well, you can't take away all of that, but what you can do is take away the vertical stuff. You can force Miami to just work the horizontal stuff. And then similar to if you're facing Derrick Henry, what do you do when you're facing Derrick Henry? You try to keep him from getting downhill. You try to get his feet moving sideways. If you can get him moving sideline to sideline instead of up the field, then you can slow him down. So similarly, you want to keep this passing attack moving horizontally so that you have bodies kind of across the board that can keep these big plays from happening. So expect Miami to have success throwing the ball underneath, but the Bills will be doing everything they can to prevent this downfield passing. On the flip side, we have a Buffalo offense that has scored 37 and 38 points their last two games, obviously capable of putting up big scores, but it has been relentless praise for Josh Allen for taking underneath throws so far this year. At week in and week out, uh, or I guess since the Jets game, which was a, a debacle for this Bills team, the offensive coordinators, head coach, the players, Josh Allen himself, it's been constant praise for taking the underneath throws. Now, Josh Allen's still going to sling it. He's still going to throw the ball downfield, but he's going to do so at more opportunistic times, he's going to do so when the defense clearly allows him to do so instead of forcing these throws. The realization that the Bills want Josh Allen to have is you don't have to win us the game on every play. Obviously, Josh Allen's come a long way in this understanding since his rookie year because that was his issue, was that he would try to be the hero on every single play. And Brian Dable took him a long way down the road of not doing that. And he kind of regressed a little bit last year with Brian Dable gone and then looked like he was regressing further in that game against the Jets. And so this has been an emphasis is like, look, we've got this great defense. We've added this really good run game and the, the Bills are blocking really well. And James Cook is, you know, top five, top six back by a lot of advanced metrics so far this year. Bill's run game is really good. They have these underneath weapons now in Dalton Kincaid and Stefan Diggs can get open in the short and intermediate areas. And so they're wanting Josh Allen to understand like there will be times where we need you to launch the ball downfield to a guy who's probably covered, but you think you can make that throw. There's going to be times where that's what we need from you. But for the most part, we need to make sure that we are staying on schedule, not giving the opponent life on offense and if, if they want us to march the field, we'll march the field. Well, bring in Vic Fangio and this cover two shell that he, not that he pioneered, right? The cover two shell has been around since the 80s. Uh, in fact, there's a story that has nothing to do with DFS, but uh, a story of uh, Bill Belichick and Nick Saban in the mid to might, might have even been early 80s going to a cabin in, I think it was upstate New York that the Belichick family owned or maybe the Saban family owned uh, to convene. They both worked for, for different organizations at the time, I think different NFL teams at the time that would not have wanted them 
convening off the field and working together. And so they kind of got to this, this little getaway, these two buddies and, uh, and they basically was this getaway for them to talk about like the, the difficulties presented by the cover two scheme and like how to break through the cover two scheme if you're an offense and then what to watch for if you're a defense for what offensive coordinators might be looking for of how to break through this cover two scheme. And uh, this cover two scheme is back in vogue, but a lot of it has come from what Vic Fangio has been able to do with this cover two scheme. And again, this cover two shell, it's all about forcing the ball underneath, forcing the opponent to march the field, recognizing that they're going to ultimately end up making a mistake if they have to put together 10, 12, 13 play drives. And if you have a team that can get pressure with the front four without blitzing, all the better, right? Because you have seven men clogging up the coverage and you're able to get pressure on the quarterback and the quarterback has to take these underneath throws. So anyhow, all that to say, Miami, Vic Fangio, they're going to try to force Josh Allen to work underneath and the Bills are encouraging Josh Allen to work underneath. Is this game going to be low scoring? That would be very surprising. But is this game going to be a 38 to 42 game? Is this going to be a had to have it game? It's possible. That could happen. And I will build some rosters this week around that scenario, but I won't build many because the likeliest scenario here is that this is a 28 to 24 type of game where both teams are scoring points, but neither team is exploding. And at the price tags, that means you end up getting like we just talked about Jalen Hurts, solid production, but not necessarily had to have it production. So that's one side of this week is that there are a lot of spots like that where it's like, man, it would be hard for this spot to fail. But also, if I don't have this spot, it's probably not going to be a spot that I had to have in order to win this week. So then the question becomes, are there spots that you could had to have. And what's interesting here is that the spots that are like that also have a lot of ways that they could fail, or I should say a lot more ways that they could fail. And so what this ultimately does in the way I'm seeing this week is there's this, there's this top level of the, of the, those are just examples, right? Of the Jalen Hurts or the, the, you could say Josh Allen, or you could say this Bills Dolphins game, these top level spots where it's like, you know what? You probably, these are pretty bankable points that you're probably getting. And yet it's going to be hard for these to be like true had to have it scores. And then, then there's this next level, excuse me, of players or spots that actually could end up ascending above those, but they come with a lot more question marks and a lot more opportunities for failure. So some examples there, Justin Fields at quarterback, Russell Wilson at quarterback, Anthony Richardson at quarterback, or you could even extend that to the entire Rams and Colts game environment. The uh, Chargers game environment against the Raiders, if Jimmy Garoppolo is under center, we've seen how bad the Chargers defense has been this year. We won't get too deep into the individual players and all that because we have the player grid coming out here in a little bit. And you'll be able to um, to kind of see my deeper thoughts on the individual spots on this slate in the player grid. I want to make sure that we're really focused on the macro of what this slate provides and how I'm attacking this slate as a result. Uh, speaking of things that are coming later today, I just checked to confirm that this is in fact live and this is so cool. Uh, as of later today, uh, I will be able to start publishing to the Bink machine my own player groups, my own player rules, uh, stack settings, all that stuff. So um, if you are a Bink machine user, as of typically I get all of that in on Saturday night. So basically you will be able to come through on Sunday morning and you will be able to uh, find a drop down where you can just select my presets and apply any of my rules that you want to apply. So uh, obviously with the player rules, you can uncheck any of the ones that you don't want to use. If you have already set some of your own player rules, you'll want to make sure that your rules don't conflict with the rules that I've posted. So what I, what I would recommend is uh, inputting my rules and then unchecking the ones that you don't want to use. But a uh, really cool feature that we've been excited about and uh, been kind of in development. And so as of this weekend, as of Sunday morning, uh, and I'll, I'll publish a few of them today because I have to create a few of them for the player grid. But um, yeah, exciting announcement there that those player groups will be ready. Again, as we've been talking about, 
incredibly valuable to use an optimizer for single entry and three max play. It will significantly sharpen your single entry three, three max play. I won't dive into all the reasons why, although I'm sure I'll, I'll touch on it again at some point in the season. But uh, moving back onto this slate. Uh, or actually, before I do, I actually want to read this real quickly. This is a text from uh, from Mike Johnson, who used the Bink machine for the first time this last week. And he said, uh, dude, that was the first text, dude, all caps. Uh, the Bink machine is awesome. First optimizer I've ever used where I didn't feel like I was wasting my time. And the lineups look really close to what I'd actually make. Uh, haven't even tried one in like three plus years because I felt like I spent hours messing with things and just ended up with parroted lineups with like one guy changed. Or it would be like, yeah, sorry, your parameters don't work. Here's four lineups. Uh, so yeah, shout out to the big machine. Shout out to what Caleb and, and Sam and the guys at FTN have put together there and kind of helped integrate into the OWS site. So um, again, I know if, you, if you've been in Discord, you've seen how many people have been shouting out the Bink machine in the Reflection channel, in the Binks channel. But um, again, grab a week pass or test it out. We, we knocked the price down to uh, 129 for the rest of season. So um, yeah, that comes out to like eight bucks a weekend or seven bucks a weekend if you're playing playoff slates. Um, so if you're playing, you know, 40 bucks a weekend, 50 bucks a weekend, 80, 100 bucks a weekend, to me, that's a worthwhile cost for the edge that it gives you. Um, if you're not sure, grab a week pass, poke around on it, and find out. Again, like I said, you'll find my some of my uh, or all of my player groups in there this weekend um, will be published throughout the night on Saturday night, so you'll find them in there on Sunday morning. I'm, I'm West Coast, obviously, so my night is late <laughs> for most of you, but when you get up on Sunday morning, those player groups will be in there. Okay, so the we talked about this top top level type stuff, right? Where it's like, here are the plays on this slate that have a high floor. I mean, a, a high ceiling too, right? We always say thirty point scores they matter. Anytime you get a thirty point score, it matters. But we also have to recognize, you know, another unique component about this slate. This is not week one where pricing was set a month and a half before the slate kicked off. This is not week two where we had Tank Dell at 32 or 3,300 and I'm putting him on 40% of my rosters and saying, man, this guy should be priced at 4,900. Even if he doesn't hit this week, he's one of the sharpest plays on the slate. This is not week three where we're saying WTF, Tank Dell is still only 3,600. Adam Thielen's down here at 3,900. This is not a week where we just have screaming value and because of that, yes, 30-point scores are always valuable, but if you're taking... Some of the popular pieces right now for salary savers appear to be Josh Downs, appear to be Calvin Austin. Again, another valuable asset in having an optimizer is you can just run rosters based off of projections and see what's being spit out there so that you can get a sense of what people across the industry are going to be getting in their initial builds. And what, what you know, I was looking at ownership last night. I typically don't look at it on Thursdays, but I was, I was like, man, where are people going on this slate? Because again, to me, this slate is very bunched up. And I was looking at some ownership projections last night and I was like, oh wow, Josh Downs is one of the most popular plays. Calvin Austin is one of the most popular plays. Pat Fryermuth is one of the most popular plays. And then ran the optimizer this morning and it was like, like the first 10 rosters had one one or more of those guys on the rosters because again it's saying well how can we fit in the high price guys but let's be realistic here these are these are optimizing for median scores these are optimizing for cash games right not optimizing for tournaments and if Josh Downs puts up his typical 8 point game or if Calvin Austin and again Calvin Austin is an interesting example cuz he can score from anywhere on the field but let's say that he puts up 7 points and Fryermuth puts up 8 and Josh Downs puts up 8 well you're taking 8 point scores to fit in 30 point scores right you're not you're not getting 4 extra salary anywhere and you're kind of keeping your roster on track for uh, you know, 160 points, 170 points, and that's not going to win you a tournament. So if you're saving salary to pay up for these guys who are probably going to get you 24 or more points, but probably won't get you more than 30-ish, Christian McCaffrey, another example, F phenomenal play from a standpoint of who's going to get you points, right? Who's not going to hurt your roster? But 13, we throw out the first game where Christian McCaffrey just joined the team, Thursday night game against Kansas City, was just getting up to speed throughout that game. He, he's had 13 games with the 49ers. How many times has he topped 30 DraftKings points? Three. 
three times out of, out of 13 games and you're you know going to pay over 9k in salary for him and then you're going to take on like a six point to eight point player in order to fit this guy right so you can see how quickly people can limit their upside on a week like this but what's interesting is the places where there really is the upside where it's like okay so who could have a much higher point per dollar type of day than these guys or who could have a true raw had to have it score are the plays where a lot more things could go wrong on those plays as well. So Justin Fields, again, is a great example of this. Justin Fields, it's easy to look at the Broncos and be like, man, they gave up 70 points to the Broncos, the worst defense in NFL history. But it's like, it was an isolated game against a very unique, very difficult to defend opponent. Are the Bears very unique and very difficult to defend? No. And we can also say, well, well, Sam Howell and Washington, they put up 33 or 35 points was, was what it was. But also that was they were way down in that game. And the, the Bears kind of switched to more of a shell type defense and Washington was able to exploit it. The Bears got too conservative on defense too early. But before that, it had been a hard game for Washington up to that point. Uh, the Raiders had a hard game against the, the Broncos in week one, right? So not to say that the Broncos are a good defense or a great defense, but they're probably not as bad as they looked last week. And the Bears offense has been uh, like outlandishly pathetic in terms of their scheme in terms of we've talked about this already, but what they're asking Justin Fields to do in terms of uh, after a year ago where they had one of the most creative run games in the second half of the season and unleashed Justin Fields on the ground, all of a sudden they enter this year and they're like, drop back and pass. Let's turn you into a pocket pass. Stay in the pocket. Don't get out of there. Like it doesn't make any sense. They're, they're not blocking guys up front. They have poor blocking scheme. You know, last week, Chris Jones was, you know, had one guy blocking him on a, on an outlandish number of plays where you got this one guy who can wreck the game and you're, you're not putting two guys on him. You're not adjusting your blocking scheme to account for him. And then on top of all of that, we're seeing Justin Fields, like there will be wide open slants and, and underneath routes open for him and he'll pass them up. So he's either not seeing them or he's so much in his head right now that he can't just flow. He can't just see something and pull the trigger on it, right? So add all that together and listen, would it be shocking if Justin Fields has a 40 pointer here? No, not at all. But would it be shocking if he only puts up 19 points, 20, 21 points? No. And so we have to recognize that there is, uh, on a lot of these other plays, Anthony Richardson, another one, right? 6,700, he can rush for 100 yards and two scores, but also similar to Fields last year, he's probably not throwing for more than around 220 passing yards. That's Lamar Jackson most games, right? And what does Lamar Jackson score most games? Around 21, 22, 23 points. So the likeliest outcome for Anthony Richardson is something in that range where he gets eight or nine points through the air, probably gives back one point through a turnover. So let's say he's got eight points before touchdowns and rushing. And let's say he rushes for 60 yards. Well, that gets him up to 14 points. And let's say he rushes for a touchdown that gets him up to 20 points. Let's say he throws for a touchdown that gets him up to 24. And that's not really the type of score you're hoping to get at 6,700. Not going to kill you, not going to kill you, but it's not like the type of score that wins you a tournament. So uh, obviously things could go wrong for him and he could have, it could end up getting 17 points, 19 points, whatever it might be. And so there's just a lot of that on this slate where the highest priced guys are maybe priced more for the solid score they're going to get you than for the ceiling that they can hit. And again, as I already said, would it shock me if Josh Allen and the Bills put up a big game here and Miami keeps pace and that game does end up being a game you had to have? No, but it's just not the likeliest scenario. Would it shock me if Jalen Hurts instead of throwing for 340 and three before they kind of start coasting, if he throws for 340 and four and adds 30 or 40 yards in the ground, that wouldn't shock me. But that's just not the likeliest scenario. And then you've got these other spots that you can look to and say, man, maybe this is the spot that ascends above those ones. But at the same time, what if it's not, right? What if it's not because there are a lot of potential pitfalls on these spots? So that's kind of the way that this slate shapes up to where there's, there's, and it's not just the quarterback position. I'm using the quarterback position as the examples, but it's kind of across the board. The higher priced running backs, same type of thing, right? We're not really seeing spots where there's a strong potential of somebody putting up a 35, 38 point game that you really had to have. You have the cheaper guys. You've got the massive workload guys in Zach Moss and Kyron Williams. You've got uh, Alexander Madison. He'll be on the player grid. You'll see some uh, quotes from the, the Vikings that make me feel somewhat comfortable, somewhat confident that 
Alexander Madison will still have the lead role in this game. Um, you, got, you got the guys like that where, hey, something could happen and they could put up they could put up 25 points themselves. And if Christian McCaffrey puts up 25 and Austin Eckler doesn't play and Josh Jacobs puts up 25 or 20, 21 or whatever it might be, and you get some of these cheap guys who put up 25, well, now you're in great shape. But you don't see a lot of opportunities for these guys to put up 35 and you also see opportunities for these guys to put up 12 points or 13 points or 14 points to where it kind of hurts your roster. So again, the these guys who actually can be the more valuable pieces based on raw points or based on point per dollar production also have more opportunities to fail. So the way I'm seeing this slate is in terms of how I'm going to put together my rosters is, is twofold. One, I'm going to make sure that I have some of the more some of the safer, like higher confidence pieces on most of my rosters. One of the ways I'm going to do that is recognizing that if Debo Samuel is out, Brandon Ayuk and George Kittle, one of them probably has a really nice game. Uh, Kittle with how thin the tight end position is going to be this week. Uh, Kittle will probably be relatively popular, but I would still probably be overweight the field on him. And I would think most people won't think about Ayuk quite as much. And so uh, that's an opportunity to get some exposure there. Another way for me to bet on consistency is recognizing that this Rams offense is so concentrated uh, among Kyron Williams, who played 55 out of 55 snaps last week, uh, Tutu Atwell and Puka Nakua. Each of these guys has played three games, so that's nine games total among the three of them. Well, of those nine games, seven have produced a score that would be solid to really good at their price tags. So that's pretty high confidence that you get one or two strong scores out of those guys. But again, then that, that's an interesting one, right? Because Kyron Williams could put up 28 to 30 at 6K. Uh, Puka Nakua could put up 35 at 6,700. Tutu Atwell, he hasn't done it yet, but he could put up 28 at 5,500. But also, what's likeliest is that you get about 24 points from Puka and you get maybe about 18 to 22 points from Kyron Williams and you get another 15 to 20 point game from Tutu Atwell, where that's kind of in the same realm as the Jalen Hurts at, at 8K and him getting 30-ish points, right? Where you're not quite getting to 4X the salary multiplier, but it's a really solid score. It looks really good on a tournament roster. So I'm going to have my roster set up in such a way that a number of spots on most of my rosters are accounted for with these high confidence guys, recognizing that again, there is a chance that Hertz goes for 35 plus. There is a chance Josh Allen goes for 35 plus. There is a chance that Puka or Kyron Williams or George Kittle or whoever it might be ends up significantly exceeding their salary multipliers and being a true tournament winner type of play. But that the likeliest scenario is that these are all kind of solid guys. And then I'm going to try to blend in across these rosters some of these lower confidence but potentially had to have it types of pieces, whether that's had to have it based on the ceiling that they have in terms of raw points or based on point per dollar, uh, and whether the low confidence is you know, maybe the offense won't score as many touchdowns as you need, or maybe the role won't be there. Like Marvin Mims is one of the guys who I like. There have been some whispers out of the Broncos beat reporters that Marvin Mims role is going to expand this week. Uh, probably I was talking to Scott Barrett about this last night to see if he had any sense of what this means. And uh, he was just guessing, but he, he said that he's thinking maybe like 40% snap share. So again, that's not enough for him to be like, man, this guy's clearly the best cheap option and nobody's on him, but it is enough for it to be like, oh, well, this guy, you know, he's been hitting on 15 snaps. So what if he sees 25 snaps this week? All of a sudden, there's that much more of a chance that he ends up hitting. Uh, Jonathan Mingo being another one, right? Like Adam Thielen's a sharp play. DJ Shark is the next sharpest play in this Panthers passing attack. But Jonathan Mingo, if he clears concussion protocol, nobody's thinking about him. He's getting schemed usage week in and week out, and he could hit for a big play. He could be one of these guys who kind of ascends above, like let's say Calvin Austin ends up on an eight-point game or a six-point game. And let's say that Josh Downs hits what he almost certainly will hit, which is sub 10 points. Well, all of a sudden, if you can find the cheap guy that was riskier, but that scores you 17 points, 22 points, whatever it might be, well, now you're moving way ahead of the field. So I don't want to have rosters that are full of those types of plays on this week. I'm going to try to blend these higher confidence bets with these lower confidence, but higher upside types of bets. And then, uh, then the last thing, 
for in terms of how I will be approaching the slate is I'm not going to try to force decisions in terms of these are my tighter builds or these are the players who are definitely going on my tighter builds. Instead, I'm going to give myself opportunities for myself. The way I'll do it is through the bank machine. If you're hand building, you could do it uh, by just building like a lot of different combinations and a lot of different angles. But I'm going to set up the bank machine on my end so that my Ownership ranges are maybe a little bit less restrictive than normal. You know, typically if I want 20% of a guy, I put him down at like 19 to 21%. And I'm telling the bank machine, get him right in this range, right? Like I really want 20% of this guy. This this week it might be more like I want 20%, but I'll say, you know, give me 16 to 24% and give it more flexibility to kind of mix and match pieces. I will probably have uh, a little bit lower ownership on my high confidence bets than I would typically have and a little bit higher ownership on my low confidence, high upside bets than I would typically have. Because again, recognizing that the field's tendency, and I guess this is the the pinnacle of everything we've talked about here, right? This is the bow that ties all of this together. The field's tendency is to gravitate towards safety. So some of these safer plays are going to hit this week. And you're going to need to have those plays on some of your rosters. But some of the safer plays are also not going to hit. And so you're talking about a week where you're probably going to get a higher median score among the field than you would typically get, but you're going to have a lot fewer rosters that are banging on the door for those 200 plus point scores because they're all kind of saying like, okay, so how do I save salary? No, this all goes out the window if Calvin Austin puts up 25 points and Josh Downs scores 17 because he you know pops in a touchdown or whatever it is, right? Like if the cheap popular pieces that are really kind of low ceiling plays or really riskier plays than ownership will indicate. If those pieces end up hitting, all of this changes. But the likeliest outcome here is we have kind of a week where people are paying down for plays that don't really have tournament winning upside in order to fit higher priced pieces that have solid floors but not necessarily tournament winning upside. And so that kind of pulls the ceiling on the field's rosters down a little bit. But again, the way to jump over and have that higher ceiling yourself is going to be to embrace that little bit of extra risk. So you don't want too much because you don't want the rosters where uh, a good example from last week, right? Is as I said, like my, my top six highest owned wide receivers last week were Justin Jefferson, Mike Williams, Tank Dell, Keenan Allen, Amari Cooper, and Adam Thielen. So you're talking 28 to 45 points across six wide receivers, and they're all mixed and matched across my rosters. And then all you really need, you know, and I had 26% Kenneth Walker. So I had plenty of rosters with, you know, a quarter of my rosters are Kenneth Walker. Most of my rosters are mixing and matching some component of these six pass catchers where I'm getting at minimum two of these pass catchers on almost every roster. And a lot of them, uh, three, three of these pass catchers, some of them, four of these pass catchers. So all I really needed last week was for, you know, of the, the quarter of my rosters that had Kenneth Walker for that to line up with one of my 8% of rosters that had Raheem Mostert. And for that to line up with all these wide receivers who were, you know, high confidence for me and all hit. And so that's kind of what you want to position yourself for is, yes, you need to have some of the lower confidence pieces that hit, but you also don't want to have rosters where it's like six lower confidence pieces because then maybe two of them hit, but you don't get to really take advantage of that because all the other ones end up missing. And so it's going to be for me mixing and matching these higher confidence pieces with these lower confidence pieces and trying to find those rosters where, you know, my five high confidence pieces on that roster all end up hitting. And then my three, two, at least two of my three lower confidence pieces on that roster end up hitting. Uh, So with that, we are going to turn the page over to the bottom up build. Uh, if you're new here, the bottom up build, we, it gives us a chance. We, we build a roster with a 44K salary cap, which gives us a chance to look at some of the value available on the slate. We also do talk about this roster through the lens of what if there were a tournament where everybody had a 44K salary cap, which allows us to also think about how, not just who are the cheapest plays on the slate that we like, but how would we blend this 
type of roster from a, from a strategy standpoint with as much upside as we could get uh, in order to win this tournament. One of the things that we learned early on when we started saying, oh, and let's actually create a contest with a 44K salary cap, uh, which is the bottom-up build contest. You can find it linked in my player grid. You can also find it in the Discord under the bottom-up build or in, in the bottom-up build, I don't know what it's called, channel, um, the bottom-up build channel. But um when we started saying, hey, like, let's actually have a, a contest with a 44K salary cap, the what we started seeing was sharp people were in there building rosters and saying, not just how do I squeeze in value, but how do I squeeze in value in order to fit in this 8K player who can go for 32 points, 35 points. And so it also gives us a chance to talk about that, about how we build strategy-wise, if we're thinking about everybody having a 44K salary cap, how we build upside-wise. And then a lot of times, my bottom-up build also includes players who might not be the absolute sharpest way to build a bottom-up build, but gives me an opportunity to talk about one or two additional pieces or spots that I might want to talk about. So this week... I really wanted to get Justin Fields into the bottom-up build, and I really wanted to get Jamar Chase into the bottom-up build. So having these two players kind of hamstrung the roster to where I have at least two value pieces in here that are one that's like extraordinarily low confidence, but it's actually kind of interesting in large field play. Uh, Another that's low confidence, but is also sharp. Um, And so this roster has... This is not my favorite bottom-up build roster. I'll say it like that. Uh, But it gives me an opportunity to hit on some of the value on this slate, obviously, but also to talk about some of the things that I really wanted to talk about here. So uh, Justin Fields, why did I want to have Justin Fields on this roster? When Keegan and I were doing our Thursday DFS lab, which of course you can find in the OWS podcast feed, find on YouTube, uh, we built a roster with Justin Fields. And as we started talking about Justin Fields, it was like, man, I, I really wasn't giving as much attention to Justin Fields and my thoughts as I should have been. And then we ended the show and we kept talking about Justin Fields. And it was like, uh, you know, looking through his game logs from last year. And you're like, yeah, he put up the the, the two 40-pointers. It was like a couple of 20-point games leading up to that. The two 40-point games. And then a bunch of games after that in the low 20s. And never really went above 24 points in any of his other games outside that, those 240-plus point scores. But he also wasn't finishing below 20 points. He was consistently in that low 20s range. Now, granted, that was same coaching staff, but a very different offense. Inexplicably, as we've talked about, inexplicably, the Bears have said, all right, drop back and pass. Now, they've started calling more designed runs. Uh, Fields has said that he's feeling more comfortable. It doesn't look like that, but he has said that he's feeling more comfortable. They are not running the offense that they were running last year, where it was like that old school Ravens offense where it's like, hey, our quarterback is a running back and you have to account for that. And then he can also throw it. Now they're more like, hey, he's our quarterback and sometimes he's going to run it, which is a a very different setup and less advantageous setup. I'm also keeping in mind the fact that I I equate it to if you've ever had like a long losing streak in DFS and you start realizing that you're just not playing as well. And then you have one slate where you barely profit and all of a sudden that like unlocks your mind to where you're able to play more free, you're able to play sharper, and you just start knocking out winning week after winning week or winning slate after winning slate. And I could see that being the case with Justin Fields, right? To where he could have a few more. I mean, listen, this guy, I think he's lost like 11 games in a row. Can you imagine what that does to your psyche? I'll say it like this. I had to, on Tuesday this week, I had to consciously shit like I had to basically consciously tell myself that I had a winning weekend in week three because I had found that I was starting to press a little bit more because after you know and I'm used to not having a hot start to the season I've talked about that right like this is the first year I had a profitable week one since I launched OWS because I'm so busy early in the season and then my edge really starts piling up around week five or six and I do better on slates with fewer games on them so like a, a 10 game slate 11 game slate buys start kicking in I do better when I have more information from these teams I do better when the uh, salary gets tougher for the field because uh, it's tougher for me too but I'm it's less tough for me than it is for the field right so like I'm used to starting the season 
and slow. And the fact that I had a, a solid week, week one and a really nice week, week two, it was like, man, I'm way ahead of the game already this year. And then I had this week in week three that was, again, really solid week, kind of on a knife's edge between being profitable or unprofitable, but I finished down a little bit of money. And even with the fact that I'm way ahead of pace for where I need to be and where I typically am at this point in the year. And even with the fact that I was highly confident that, you know, it was a winning week in terms of it was sharp play. And I made one major mistake, which was having Kyron Williams on 44% of my rosters. I talked about that in the uh, Winter Circle podcast and why it was a mistake. And not, not that the thought process was bad or that Kyron Williams was a bad play, but based on how I allocate my ownership, that was a mistake and what that did to the rest of my rosters. But it was like one mistake and otherwise sharp play and on a, on a tough weekend for me. And yet I was pressing and I was like, I was like, oh man, I got to put an extra time this week and I got to get a little bit closer to making the best possible decisions this week. And, and I had to like step back and be like, listen, just tell yourself you had a winning week last week. Just tell yourself you made money last week. Like trick yourself into thinking that because otherwise your, your whole play starts to shift just that little bit. And then if it shifts again, then if you have another losing week and it shifts again, you start getting farther and farther away from that, that centered space where you're really putting in your best play. So take an NFL player who has lost whatever it is, 11 games in a row and who can't even take like, you know, you call a first play of the game and there's a wide open slant underneath and, and you look at it and then don't throw it. Like take a player who's in that headspace and recognize that it probably will take steps for him to break out of that. And it's not something we can quantify on our end, but it is something that we know is very real. I mean, we talked about it last year. What was the turnaround for Trevor Lawrence? You don't go from being a borderline bust, which wasn't just the Urban Meyer year, the first half of last year that was still the narrative around Trevor Lawrence, to all of a sudden being one of the top five or six quarterbacks in the league for the second half of the season, just from steady growth, right? He talked about it. Doug Peterson talked about it. It was all about confidence. And there was a moment that Trevor Lawrence talked about where Doug Peterson called for them to go for it on a fourth and one or fourth and two, whatever it was. And I think it might've been uh, a tie game or no, it was a, maybe it's a two point conversion. And they were down, you know, were down one point instead of tying it and sending it into overtime, they went for two, but whatever the, whatever the situation was, it was something like that. And Trevor Lawrence just said, that the confidence that Doug Peterson showed in him meant so much to him. And then the fact that they made that play and won that game, like that just jolted him into a different headspace. And from there, it just didn't stop. It kept building week after week after week. So again, this is stuff we can't quantify from the outside, but this is very real stuff, right? You see it in your own life on a day-to-day basis. The, the difference between a confident approach and an unconfident approach and how sometimes it takes something clicking in place for things to shift over to confidence. So it wouldn't surprise me if Justin Fields has a solid week this week, and then that leads to another solid week next week. And then all of a sudden he has a big game. He pops off for for a huge game, right? Because things start rolling in that correct direction. At the same time, maybe it all happens at once. At the same time, maybe Justin Fields just pops off for a monster game this week. And so uh, Fields is not going overlooked. He's currently projecting for like 13% ownership the last time I looked. But what if you have him on 25% of your rosters, right? And what if he ends up, what if, what if Josh Allen and Jalen Hurts put up 30 and what if Justin Fields puts up 35, 38 at a much lower price tag? Uh, Or even what if those guys put up 26, 27 and Justin Fields put up, puts up 26, 27 at a much lower price tag. So I wanted to get Justin Fields on this roster because he is one of the guys who, who is symbolic of this conversation we've had throughout the Angles podcast of how I'm approaching this week of like, I'm going to take some swings, recognizing that I'm taking on a lower floor, but I want to take some swings on the guys who could actually end up being those had to have it pieces. So on this roster, that's Justin Fields, pair him with Cole Komet. Uh, And then I wanted to fit in Jamar Chase because again, gives us an opportunity to talk about Jamar Chase, gives us an opportunity to talk about uh, something that Hilo brought up in the NFL Edge write-up for that game, which was the increased slot rate for uh, Jamar Chase last week with the Bengals basically looking for ways to get him the ball against the cover two coverages. Uh, on top of that, the 
Bengals so far have faced all these tough pass defenses and defenses that try to force short area throws. Now they're taking on a Tennessee Titans defense that A, filters opponents to the air, uh, B, has faced the, I believe it's still the deepest, uh, the, the highest deep pass play rate in the NFL. So just a really good spot for Jamar Chase. I also want to shout out something that, that Mike Johnson mentioned in our group text thread this week, which was nobody's really on T Higgins, uh, in the, in the industry, in terms of ownership, whatever, uh, and Puka Nakua, a similar price tag coming in with much higher ownership than T Higgins. Uh, personally, I believe that they have equal ceilings I and mean, we've already seen Puka put up a 34 point game. I believe that they have equal ceilings. I believe that Puka has a higher floor, but at the same time, Puka could put up 17 points and T Higgins could put up 32, 33 points, right? There's that's also within the range of outcomes. So T Higgins, another guy who is interesting, but I want to have a focus on this Bengals passing attack this week. I don't expect to have much, if any, Joe Burrow that could change. It won't change to a ton of Joe Burrow, but it could change to some Joe Burrow, uh, again, 6,500 and he's a pocket passer and he doesn't really have the mobility right now to add uh, a lot of times you get, you know, two points or three points from, from Burrow from his legs with the calf strain. He's not even going to have that. So you need pure production through the air. You need 300 yards and three touchdowns. And that puts him at 27 points, but there are some cheaper guys who I think can also get that 300 yard, three touchdown that I'll be exploring. You'll see them in the player grid this week. So, uh, my primary focus on the Bengals will be the pass catchers. And because Tennessee does not tilt opponents away from their primary targets, my primary focus will be Jamar Chase and T Higgins as in, uh, not necessarily trying to say, Hey, who's filling in for Irv Smith, a tight end, or maybe Tyler Boyd has a big game and maybe he does. Right. But the likeliest scenario is that, Hey, T Higgins and, and Jamar Chase, that's who's having targets schemed for them. And, Titans aren't really able to push the Bengals away from throwing those two guys. So uh, that's the way I'm looking at that spot. Wanted to get Jamar Chase onto this bottom up build. Uh, Also, you know, same thing, like who could put up the score that puts the slate out of reach? Um, Justin Jefferson could, right? But he's another like 1,500 more expensive or 1,800 more expensive than Jamar Chase. Tyreek Hill could, but he's also in this tough matchup and you know, his likeliest outcome is about 30 points. Uh, Justin Jefferson's likeliest outcome is, you know, 25 to 35 points. So if Jamar Chase is able to put up one of his 38 pointers at a much lower price tag, if if Jefferson and, and Tyreek end up at 30 points or below, if, um, if, you know, Stefan Diggs ends up in his typical like 24 to 27 point range, if Devontae Adams doesn't have Jimmy Garoppolo or has a game like he had in weeks one and two where he's not blowing up for a monster game, Uh, If Keenan Allen against a Raiders defense that is not good, but did double cover George Pickens almost every play last week and has one of the lowest first read rates in the NFL uh, is obviously going to go out of their way to try to force the Chargers away from Keenan Allen. Uh, If Keenan Allen has... You know, he's still a low A dot player, so he still needs a ton of targets or multiple touchdowns. So if he ends up having one of his, you know, seven catches for 85 yards and no touchdown type games, uh, anyhow, all, all of these spots, right? If they line up in a certain way and then Jamar Chase goes for 35 or 38 or whatever he's capable of, you know, uh, Stefan Diggs went for 147 yards and three touchdowns against the Titans last year. If Jamar Chase puts up one of those types of games, which he's capable of, he could really separate from the other pass catchers on this slate. Obviously, there are other guys who could do the same thing, but Jamar Chase, to me, is one of the stronger bets to be a difference maker on this slate. So I wanted to get him onto this bottom-up build, most specifically to be able to talk about him in that regard. So right now we have Justin Fields, Cole Komet, Jamar Chase, and salary really starting to get tightened up. Uh, Running back, let's talk about running back, where it was not possible for me to get two really solid running backs on this roster because of what I wanted to do with salary elsewhere. If I were building for a contest with money in it, I probably wouldn't do what I'm doing here, but I wanted to be able to talk about Fields and Chase. Uh, And so I have Kyron Williams on this roster. No need to talk about that. 55 out of 55 snaps last week. We know that's a really sharp play. Uh, And then I put in Elijah Mitchell. And that was, again, because I had to save salary here. But Elijah Mitchell is kind of interesting in large field play. Because what if it's, it's similar to Kenneth Gainwell, right? Where 
nobody's going to play this guy on this team. And what if the 49ers jump out to a huge lead? And what if Elijah Mitchell sees 16 carries, 17 carries? And what if he goes for 100 yards and a touchdown or 100 yards and two touchdowns at this really cheap price tag? So Elijah Mitchell, probably not a guy I'm playing outside of maybe like three MME rosters, but it is an interesting angle to consider. And it's a way to save salary on this roster to fit in the other things we wanted to fit in. Uh, This brings us to three cheap wide receivers. So I wanted to go ahead and avoid Josh Downs. I wanted to go ahead and avoid Calvin Austin. And so that kind of forced me on to two guys who I really like, Josh Palmer and Marvin Mims. Obviously, Marvin Mims with a wider range of outcomes. But as we know, a high ceiling. And as we talked about, could end up seeing a larger role this week than he has the first couple weeks, the first few weeks of the season. Uh, Josh Palmer, I like him more if Austin Eckler misses because they are going to have to have plays designed for at least two pass catchers. Um, And if the Raiders are taking away Keenan Allen on a lot of first reads, well, Josh Palmer will probably be the second read on a lot of those. And so uh, if Austin Eckler is out, Josh Palmer becomes extremely interesting to me this week. If Eckler plays, I still like Josh Palmer, but I like him a little bit less because I would expect the offense to flow primarily through Eckler and Keenan Allen uh, and, and for setups to be where, you know, if Keenan Allen's covered, Eckler is also available in an upside type of setup. So uh, yeah, that kind of hinges on that, but I like Palmer either way, really like him if Austin Eckler is out. Uh, And then the other guy I put in here is Rashid Shahid. So somewhat thin play because he's typically going to see, you know, uh, two to four to six targets. But then at the same time, how many targets is Calvin Austin going to see? Probably four to six targets. That's what he's been seeing so far this year within the, in the couple of games with Deontay Johnson out for, I think it was four targets and six targets in those games. So obviously Shahid is a, a little bit more expensive. He's 4K instead of 3,300. But in terms of salary savers, he's falling into the same bucket where you say, you know what, this guy probably gets about six targets, but he can score from anywhere on the field. Uh, But Shahid gets you the guy who nobody's rostering instead of the guy who a lot of people will be rostering. DJ Shark is another guy you could play in this same category. Jonathan Mingo, another guy you could play in this same category. Uh, So that gives us Justin Fields, Elijah Mitchell, Kyron Williams, Josh Palmer, Rashid Shahid, Jamar Chase, Cole Komet, Marvin Mims. We wrap it up with the Browns defense, uh, one of the top three, four defenses in the NFL this year, uh, taking on Lamar Jackson in a, in a solid Ravens offense, a very competitive team, but also a team that can take sacks, a team that can turn the ball over and Browns come with a good price tag. So they're not going to be overlooked this week, but they're a solid option at the defense position. That leaves us with 6.3K in salary left over, 43.7K in salary spent. That also gives us some bones we could work with for uh, adding some pieces there for a full 50K roster. Always something that I like doing is taking that bottom-up build roster and seeing what I can kind of massage on it from the core to um, build a a full 50K roster that I like. And with that, I guess we're going to call it a day for the Angles podcast. Like I said, interesting slate, interesting picture on this week's box, but we still have to go out there and build, but recognizing what that picture is, is definitely going to give us a leg up on the competition and put us a step ahead of where we otherwise would be. So with that, I will see you on one week season throughout the weekend. I will see you hopefully on the Bink Machine where you can see my player rules published to your own Bink Machine account. And I will see you at the top of the leaderboards on Sunday. Sunday.